Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. So, do you want marketing made simple? Shopify removes the guesswork with built-in tools that help you create, execute, and analyze all your online marketing campaigns. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com income now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com income. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation, the podcast that tells the extraordinary story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African-Americans, and other outcasts invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. I'm David Armstrong, and I call this episode The Silver Age of Broadway, Part 2. As I'm sure you can imagine, the Great Depression had a tremendous effect on Broadway. A number of leading Broadway producers, including Ziegfeld and the Schubert's corporate entity, went bankrupt when the stock market lost $14 billion on October 29, 1929, and then another $26 billion over the following two weeks. And the economic impact spread gradually to affect the entire country. Eight million people were unemployed by the end of that year, and by the end of 1932, when the entire banking system had virtually collapsed, one quarter of the American workforce was out of a job. Although many politicians, along with the media of the day, ignored or played down what was happening, a handful of plays, novels, films, and even Broadway musicals reflected what was actually happening to the people of America. Writer Stanley Green, in his book Ring Bells Sing Songs, the Broadway musicals of the 1930s, says that even the musical theater, the most opulent, extravagant, and unabashedly commercial form of theater, could not hide from what was going on. It could still offer evenings of mirth and hilarity, but it also showed a growing awareness of its own unique ability to make telling comments on such issues of the day as the folly of war, municipal corruption, political campaigns, the workings of the federal government, the rising labor movement, the dangers of both the far right and the far left, 
and the struggle between democracy and totalitarianism. He goes on to say that the Broadway musical discovered that a song lyric, a tune, a wisecrack, a bit of comic business, a dance routine, could say things with even more effectiveness than many a serious-minded drama, simply because the appeal was to a far wider spectrum of the theater-going public. They used to tell me I was building a dream And so I followed the mob When there was earth to plow or guns to bear I was always there right on the job One example of this is the song Brother Can You Spare a Dime which was written for a 1930 review called Americana. Its haunting music was the creation of composer Jay Gorney. He was born Abraham Jacob Gornetsky in 1896 in Bialystok, Russia, which is now part of Poland. He and his parents fled a pogrom there and emigrated to Detroit in 1906. Gorney paid his way through the University of Michigan as well as their law school by working as a pianist. His love of music eventually drew him to New York City, where between 1923 and 1950, he would contribute songs to 14 Broadway musicals, most of them reviews. He said that he had based the tune of Brother Can You Spare a Dime on a lullaby that he had first heard as a child in Russia. Once I built a railroad, I made it run, made it race against time. Once I built a railroad, now it's done. Brother, can you spare a dime? Once I built a tower up to the sun, brick and rivet and lime. Once I built a tower, now it's done. Brother, can you spare a dime? The song's powerful lyrics were by E.Y. Harburg, known as Yip Harburg, the lyricist of Over the Rainbow. His parents were also Jewish immigrants from Russia. Yip grew up on New York's Lower East Side and attended high school with Ira Gershwin. They were both enthralled by the operettas of Gilbert and Sullivan, and they became lifelong friends. Both attended City College, where Harburg graduated in 1921. It was Gershwin who introduced Yip to Jay Gorney, and they began collaborating on songs, mostly for Earl Carroll's reviews. Harburg was a lifelong activist for progressive politics, and this would lead to him being blacklisted from working in film, television, and radio from 1950 to 1962. Over his long career, he would write lyrics for 19 Broadway musicals during both the Silver and the Golden Age, and during that time, he worked with several different composers. Once in khaki suits, gee, we look swell, full of that Yankee doodly dum In an interview in 1974, Gorney stated that when he was writing Brother Can You Spare a Dime, he didn't want a song that would depress people, but rather a song that would make people think. Say, don't you remember, they called me out. It was Al all the time Why don't you remember I'm your pal Say, buddy, can you spare a dime? The challenge and art of the review format is that because there is no ongoing plot and set of characters to tie everything together, each song and each sketch has to function as a one-act mini-musical or mini-play all on its own. 
The curtain goes up, and the writers have to instantly establish a new setting and new characters that we understand and identify with. And there has to be some kind of dramatic tension, even if there's no actual event or storyline. As the great musical dramatists they were, Harburg and Gorney condense all of the pain, suffering, injustice, and heartbreak of the Great Depression into one unforgettable song. Once in khaki suits, our Jeeby looks swell, full of that Yankee doodly dum. Half a million boots went slogging through hell, and I was the kid with a drum. Remember, they call me Al. It was Al all the time. Say, don't you remember? I'm your pal. Buddy, can you spare a But as is evident from that song, somehow out of all that hardship and struggle came an extraordinary period of artistic achievement and continued development for the Broadway musical. The creators of these new shows included several new and defining masters of the musical, as well as many of the bright lights of the previous decade who now achieved their full wattage in the 1930s. Among these were Cole Porter, Dietz and Schwartz, Rogers and Hart, and the Gershwins, who kicked off the decade with the smash hit Girl Crazy. Girl Crazy starred Ginger Rogers and was loaded with gags and soon-to-be hit songs. Embraceable You, But Not For Me, I'm Biding My Time, and the pit band, which was led by Red Nichols, included future music stars Benny Goodman, Gene Krupa, and Glenn Miller. But the biggest excitement came when a brassy young performer named Ethel Merman made her Broadway debut belting out this song. I got rhythm, I got music, I got my man who could ask for anything more. I got daisies in green pastures, I got my man who could ask for anything more. An old man trouble, say I don't mind him, but you won't find him. Round my door, I got starlight, I got sweet dreams, I got my man who could ask for anything more, who could ask for anything more, oh, who could ask for anything more, oh, who could ask for anything more, an old man trouble. By all reports, Ethel Merman stopped the show cold and had to perform several encores. Who could ask for anything more? Who could ask for anything more? 
Cole Porter's music and lyrics combined a glamorous, sensual, classy sophistication with racy, sexually provocative humor that proved to be the ideal antidote to the Depression. People wanted escape, and Porter and his collaborators gave it to them with shows such as The New Yorker, starring Jimmy Durante, and Gay Divorce, starring Fred Astaire in his first solo appearance without his sister. This show introduced the mega-hit Night and Day. Night and Day you are the one Only you beneath the moon and under the sun Whether near to me or far It's no matter, darling, where you are I think of you Night and day But it wasn't all escape. In addition to glamour and romance, audiences also clamored for Porter's satiric, ironic, irreverent, and sometimes cynical view of a world that seemed to be falling apart around them. So, political and social satire were also often part of the mix. Porter's 1934 musical Anything Goes is one of the two or three musicals from this period that is still regularly revived on Broadway and is produced frequently in both professional and amateur productions. I believe this show has remained in the repertoire not just because of its amazing hit-filled score, but also because of its book, which is more solidly constructed than most others of the period, and its characters are truly memorable. I'm sure many of you have seen Anything Goes and enjoyed its madcap humor, but you may have been unaware that it was satirizing several topical issues, events, and personalities from the early 1930s. The leading character, Reno Sweeney, was purposely designed as an ironic, improbable cross between the world-famous evangelist Amy Semple McPherson and the notorious nightclub hostess Texas Guinan. She was the one who famously greeted her customers by shouting, Hello, suckers! Amy had recently visited Texas's nightclub to preach, and news of this had filled the gossip columns. So the musical's authors made Reno Sweeney a former evangelist turned nightclub singer. There's a good lesson for you, sinners. Search your hearts. Sign off with Satan and tune in with heaven. Where will you stand on the day of glory? Do you hear that playing? Yes, we hear that playing. Do you know who's playing? No, who is that playing? Well, it's Gabriel, Gabriel playing. Will you be ready to go when I blow my horn? Anything Goes also spoofed the celebrity worship of gangsters during the era. Earlier that year, public enemy number one John Dillinger had gone on a violent crime spree, robbing banks and killing ten men, and had then been arrested. In the musical, when leading man Billy Crocker is mistaken for gangster Snake Eyes Johnson, he is fawned over by the passengers of the ocean liner, not so subtly named the SS American, and they are thrilled to discover that finally there is a real celebrity on board. Writer Scott Miller describes the show as a rowdy, naughty, subversive masterpiece of musical comedy and goes on to assert that Anything Goes is a stinging satire of Americans' quirky habit of turning religion into show business and criminals into celebrities. Anything Goes was the brainstorm of producer Vinton Friedley, who had been financially devastated by the stock market crash. 
To escape his creditors, he gave up his New York residence and was living aboard a fishing boat in the Pacific. That's where he got the idea for the setting for his next musical, which he originally called Hard to Get. It would take place aboard an ocean liner. The passengers would be a madcap collection of sailors, society figures, gangsters, missionaries, and nightclub performers. Despite his shaky finances, Friedley managed to sign three of the biggest stars of the day, William Gaxton, Ethel Merman, and Victor Moore and Hard to Get would have a score by the hottest songwriter of the time, Cole Porter. In the 1930s, musicals were written quickly. From concept to creation to opening night could be just a matter of two or three months, sometimes less. The songwriters often worked from just a brief, rough outline of the plot, and they often wrote songs that would later have to be shoehorned into the story. What really mattered in those days were the songs, the stars, and the laughs. To write the book, Friedley turned to a couple of seasoned pros, Guy Bolton and the comic novelist P.G. Woodhouse. The two men submitted their script and then went home, Woodhouse to France and Bolton to England. They figured that any minor adjustments could be taken care of by the director, the producer, and the stars. There's a famous story about Anything Goes that's been told and retold in dozens of books over the years. It says the plot of the show revolved around a shipwreck, which led to all sorts of farcical scurrying around, pushing to get into lifeboats, men disguised as women, and so forth. Sort of a slapstick version of Titanic. But about a month before the rehearsals were to start, a real cruise ship, the SS Morrow Castle, was returning from a seven-day cruise to Havana, and as it passed the beach at Asbury Park, New Jersey, it suddenly burst into flames. Hundreds of beachgoers watched in horror as the ship was swept by fire and quickly sank with a loss of more than 125 people. It was by far the worst maritime disaster of the 1930s, and it was clear to all involved that the Woodhouse Bolton book could not be used. And since the show's original authors were no longer available for rewrites, Friedley asked the show's director, Howard Lindsay, to take over the book writing duties. Lindsay said that he would need a partner to get it done in time. Rehearsals were only a month and a half away. And eventually, Russell Krauss, a press agent for the Theater Guild with very little playwriting experience, was hired. There's just one problem with the story— It isn't true. Researchers have uncovered the original script, and guess what? There's no shipwreck. There never was. The truth, confirmed by letters and telegrams, is that the Woodhouse book was unfocused and unfunny, and even by 1930s standards, made no sense. That whole we-can't-have-a-shipwreck-in-the-show story was apparently made up by Friedley to explain the sudden change of authors and to give Woodhouse and Bolton a face-saving exit from the production. The new authors, Lindsay and Krauss, would go on to become one of Broadway's top writing teams with a 30-year career that included straight dramas like Life with Father and Arsenic and Old Lace and musicals such as Call Me Madam and The Sound of Music. Working around the clock, they quickly rewrote Hard to Get, throwing out most of the previous book, keeping just a few of the characters, and of course the ocean liner setting. Less than six weeks after throwing out the script, Friedley called the cast to rehearsals for the new show, still called Hard to Get. He was hoping for a new title as well, and the creative team was racking their brains trying to come up with one. Finally, one day, leading man William Gaxton blurted out, Well, in a show like this, anything goes. And Cole Porter, knowing a money title when he heard one, rushed home to compose the title song. The next morning, he came in with the catchy melody and brilliant lyrics that we know and love today. Times have changed, and we've often rewound the clock. Since the Puritans got a shock When they landed on Plymouth Rock But today 
shocked they would try to stem Instead of landing on Plymouth Rock Plymouth Rock would land on them In olden days a glimpse of stocking Was a look down or something shocking But now God knows anything goes Good authors too who once knew better words Now only use more letter words writing prose Anything Goes opened on November 21st, 1934, and was an immediate, resounding success. Its score was loaded with hit tunes that monopolized the radio and dance band repertoire for months afterwards. So though I'm not a great romancer, I know that you're bound to answer when I propose. Anything Goes. The show ran 420 performances, the second longest run of the decade, and is the most frequently revived musical of the 1930s. Anything goes, if driving fast cars you like. Today, the script, which has had some revisions over the years, still turns out laughs like clockwork, and the music and lyrics still amuse, thrill, and delight us. They think he's gangster number one, so they've made him the favorite son, and that goes to show. The Gershwin brothers would go even further in the direction of political and social satire with three ambitious musicals, Strike Up the Band, Of the I Sing, and Let Them Eat Cake, all of them with books by George S. Kaufman and Maury Riskin, both the sons of Jewish immigrants. The most popular of these shows was Of the I Sing, which tells the story of presidential candidate John P. Wintergreen and the backroom political machinations and publicity stunts that get him elected president. The show's satirical targets include venal corrupt congressmen, presidential sex scandals, the manipulation of the Supreme Court, the relationship between the president and the media, and it all climaxes with an impeachment trial. Clearly not much has changed over the past 86 years. Of the I Sing became the first musical to win the Pulitzer Prize for Drama. This clearly established the musical as an art form to be taken seriously. Hi, this is David Armstrong, and even here in Seattle, warmer, sunnier days are on their way. So it's time to fuel up for them and meet your wellness goals with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Thanks to Factors' menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, or my favorite, Vegetarian, Factors' fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. So what are you waiting for? 
kickstart that new healthy routine with 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week so you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can crush those wellness goals with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make everyday delicious from breakfast to dessert with restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. With no shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. With Factor, you enjoy effortless support for your lifestyle, choosing from six menu preferences that help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or simply eat well-balanced meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com BN50 and use code BN50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code BN50 at factormeals.com BN50 as in Broadway Nation 50, and you'll get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Do it today! The 1930s was also the heyday of the sophisticated musical review. This version of the review was more focused and streamlined than in the Ziegfeld era, and the great Jewish-American songwriting team of Howard Dietz and Arthur Schwartz were the masters of this form. They often used a theme like a trip around the world to unify the review's songs, dances, and comedy sketches, and they strive to be extremely current and topical. Their string of hit reviews included Three's a Crowd, The Bandwagon, Flying Colors, and At Home Abroad, all filled with big stars and hit songs. Dancing in the dark Till the tune ends We're dancing in the dark and it soon ends We're waltzing in the wonder Of why we're here Time hurries by We're here and gone Looking for the light Of a new love To brighten up the night I have you and we can face the music together dancing in the dark. In a similar vein, the review As Thousands Cheer was literally ripped from the headlines of the day. It used a newspaper format as its unifying concept, and this was the brainchild of Moss Hart and Irving Berlin. Throughout the show, news headlines would be projected on a screen above the stage, and songs and comedy sketches would then bring those headlines to life. Irving Berlin had an incredible ability to stay hip and relevant throughout the many decades of his Broadway career. As Thousands Cheer began with front-page news, a comedy sketch about the inauguration of President Roosevelt, and then moved through the weather report, the song We're Having a Heat Wave, and the funny pages, brought to life in a ballet in which all the comic strip characters of the day cavorted with dancing superstar Marilyn Miller. The first act finale brought to life the illustrated society pages of the newspaper, in which fashionable New Yorkers strolled down Fifth Avenue and introduced the new song, Easter Parade. In your Easter bonnet, with all the frills upon it, 
You'll be the grandest lady in the Easter parade. I'll be all in. You are listening to one of the era's biggest stars, actor, singer, dancer Clifton Webb, who headlined as Thousands Cheer, as well as 22 other Broadway musical comedies, plays, and reviews. On the avenue, Fifth Avenue. The photographers will snap us, and you'll find that you're in the rotogravure. He was openly gay, not with the general public, of course, but definitely within the professional worlds of Broadway and Hollywood. The girl I'm taking to the Easter parade. But then, following a comedy sequence that opened Act Two, a headline appeared reading, Unknown Negro Lynched by Frenzied Mob. Then below, out of the darkness, Ethel Waters appeared dressed as a poor sharecropper's wife, trying to set the table for dinner. Ethel Waters was the star of nine Broadway musicals. How I keep explaining when they ask me where he's gone. How I keep from crying when I bring day supper on. Irving Berlin wrote this song especially for her. How can I remind them to pray at their He was responding to the fact that in 1933, 28 black Americans were lynched in 11 different states. How can I be thankful when they start to thank the Lord? This was the power of the review, the ability to turn on a dime from comedy to drama and on occasion even tragedy, and then switch back to glamour and romance. 
What was most important with the review was the order of the songs and sketches, and these shows' creators would go to great lengths to make sure they were programmed for maximum impact. Rodgers and Hart would create 10 Broadway musicals during the 1930s, including Jumbo, On Your Toes, Babes in Arms, The Boys from Syracuse, and I'd Rather Be Right, whose central character was Franklin Delano Roosevelt himself, played by George M. Cohan. But the peak of their partnership came in 1940 with the musical Pal Joey, and this was a major step forward in the transformation of the loosely assembled musical comedies of the Silver Age into the unified structure that would soon revolutionize the musical. That show's director and book writer was George Abbott. George Abbott, known as Mr. Abbott, is another of the major exceptions to the central premise of this podcast. He was a straight, white, Anglo-Saxon Protestant male, and yet he was also one of the single most important figures in the entire history of the Broadway musical. He most certainly had the longest theatrical career of the 20th century. In the course of his long life, and he lived to be 107 years old, George Abbott was involved as a director, writer, or producer, and sometimes all three of those, in more than 120 Broadway productions. Gilbert Milstein of the New York Times once wrote that, On the basis of sheer frightening volume alone, an argument can be drummed up that no living individual, or possibly even dead, has contributed more to the Broadway theater than George Abbott. That was written in 1954, when Mr. Abbott had been working for only 40 years and still had 50 years of work ahead of him. Most of Abbott's shows were plays. He didn't tackle his first musical until 1935, when he co-directed Rodgers and Hart's circus extravaganza, Jumbo. And over the next 27 years, he staged 26 musicals. 22 of them were major hits. He wrote and directed the musicals as if they were plays, with respect for their plots and characters. And he directed the plays like they were musicals, with fast pacing and at breakneck speed. During the 1930s, even his closest friends and colleagues stopped using his first name, George, and began to call him Mr. Abbott. He had gained that level of reverence and respect, and there was much talk about the Abbott touch. Like the Midas touch, it was thought that George Abbott could touch a production and turn it to gold. When he was asked to explain the Abbott touch, he would respond by saying, I just make them say their final syllables. But there was much more to it than that. Often characterized as louder, faster, funnier, the Abbott touch, according to the master himself, most accurately involved timing. It's keeping the show interesting, he said. And he added that sometimes if you fix the writing, you fix the directing. I've seen so many plays bore the audience because the story is muddy. He also told his actors to always approach comedy situations very seriously. He said if you play comedy for laughs, it won't work. If you play it for real, it will be very funny. Pal Joey would become one of the pinnacle achievements of the Silver Age. Written and directed by George Abbott, with music and lyrics by Rodgers and Hart, and choreography by Robert Alton. Pal Joey was based on a series of short stories by John O'Hara that had first appeared in the New Yorker magazine, and they were about a small-time nightclub entertainer named Joey Evans, who becomes the willing boy toy of an older, very wealthy, and married society woman who funds his nightclub dreams. The show's anti-hero and cynical, provocative storyline brought a darkness and a toughness to the Broadway musical that had never been seen before. And it was also wildly entertaining with a hit-filled score 
and thrilling star-making performances by Gene Kelly, Vivian Siegel, and June Havoc. If they asked me, I could write a book about the way you walk and whisper and look. Although Rodgers and Hart would follow Pal Joey with two more hit musicals, by the early 1940s, Larry Hart was disappearing for days at a time, his drunken binges more and more disturbing. And then when the team received an offer from the Theater Guild to work on turning the play Green Grow the Lilacs into a musical, Rogers told Hart, I want you to have yourself admitted to a sanitarium, and I'll get myself admitted too. We'll be there together and work together, but you've got to get off the street. Larry made it clear that this was not going to happen. There was no way he was checking himself into a sanitarium. He was on his way to Mexico. Rogers gave him an ultimatum. Larry, if you walk out now, someone else will do the show with me. Anyone in mind, Hart asked. Rogers replied that Oscar Hammerstein would write the lyrics. There's no man better for the job, Hart said. I don't know how you've put up with me all these years. The best thing would be for you to forget about me. He walked out of the meeting, leaving Richard Rogers and the show that would become Oklahoma behind. Larry Hart would attend the opening of that game-changing musical, and he would hug Rogers and tell him that it was the best show he'd ever seen. But not long after that, he would die of pneumonia after losing his coat during an all-night bender on the streets of New York. But I think he was too smart not to have seen the writing on the wall. After all, he had in no small way helped to usher in this sea change that was just about to arrive. The loose, sometimes ramshackle, but wildly funny, tuneful and entertaining Rodgers and Hart-style musicals of the Silver Age would soon almost be entirely replaced by the story-driven, character-rich, perfectly crafted, and cohesive musical plays of Rodgers and Hammerstein that would usher in the golden age of the Broadway musical. Please join me for my next episode when I will trace the direct lineage of musical theater that runs from Otto Harbach to Oscar Hammerstein to Stephen Sondheim to Lin-Manuel Miranda. Broadway Nation is written and produced by me, David Armstrong. This episode has additional writing by Albert Evans. I want to thank everyone at KVSH 101.9 FM, the voice of beautiful Vashon Island, Washington, and especially everyone at the Broadway Podcast Network. Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There's enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? 
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.